Welcome to Objection. I'm Nadine Bloom. And I'm Kelly Doctor. We're lawyers at a firm called Goldblatt Partners in Toronto. On this podcast, we look at problems that are big and problems that are small and think about whether the law can be used to solve them. In the second episode of this four-part series, we're going to be talking about jail. We'll be talking about a problem behind bars that's not the first thing that you think about when you think about incarceration. Phone calls. Specifically, the fact that people in jail are paying way too much to use the phone. Not only does the phone system interfere with inmates' relationships with their loved ones, but it also violates their fundamental rights. And worst of all, someone is profiting off of it. But it's not who you might think. When someone you love is arrested and held in custody, your options to contact them are often limited to the phone. Irene Mateus knows this. She's the spokesperson for a group called Moms, Mothers Offering Mutual Support. We're mothers, sisters, grandmothers, best friends of people who are in conflict with the justice system. As visits are few and far between for those in custody, these calls are important for more than just emotional support. The practicalities, helping them to find a lawyer, being the conduit for information about legal aid, all kinds of information that may not be easy for the person to obtain inside. We spoke to a woman who has first-hand experience with the prison phone system. She asked us to call her... Anybody. I spent more than 24 months in a provincial correctional facility. It was a women's facility, and I spent all of that time in pretrial custody, a.k.a. remand. When you're arrested and awaiting trial, two things can happen. You can be released on bail, or you can stay in jail on remand. There are lots of reasons why people don't make bail that have nothing to do with whether or not they're dangerous. Sometimes, frankly, it's just because they're poor. That might mean that they don't have a residence to go to, or that they don't have somebody who's able to sign them out. And they may not have what we call a surety, the person who essentially has to guarantee a certain amount of money will be paid to the court if the person doesn't show up for trial. Now, of course, bail's not supposed to work that way in Canada, but we've talked to a number of criminal defense lawyers who've told us that sometimes that's the reality. Annie told us how important it was to have access to the phone. For the first little while, you want to be connected. You want to know what's going on with your family. You just want to have someone to talk to. Sometimes it helps you do your time. It's something that we say where it's like breaking up your time or breaking up your day. There are other times where like I needed to get things done around school or things for court, like getting court clothing or even seeing if they could drop me off canteen or semi canteen money, things like that. When you're on the inside, Getting this type of support comes at a hefty cost, both financially and emotionally. And it's all due to the way the phone system is set up. First, the system is set up so that it only accepts calls from a landline. The number of people who only have cell phones is growing every year, which means that a lot of families have to install a landline for the sole purpose of getting phone calls from jail. And that's expensive. In my case, my family didn't have a landline. There wasn't money to kind of be able to maintain that, especially if I was going to be calling on a regular basis. So I didn't actually end up calling my family that much. To try to work around the problem, Annie had to ask another inmate to call someone with a landline who would then call Annie's family's cell phone and conference them all together. Which brings us to the second problem with the phone system. 
It's set up to prevent three-way calls. The justification being that inmates may try to get around restrictions on who they may call by using an intermediary. The system detects subtle clicks that are sometimes made when the three lines are joined together, with the result that when the three-way connection is made, the call is often dropped. You don't even really want to ask someone for a three-way. It's like a burden. Like The phone can disconnect several times during that call, right? And it's kind of like it's somebody else who's paying for it, right? And you may not even get the chance to call back if you're disconnected. There's a thing called double dialing. If someone sees you redialing, they're going to think that you're double dialing. So, of course, you don't want your call to cut off because if your call keeps disconnecting, people are going to be like, okay, I want to use the phone now. When the call is dropped, there's an emotional cost not just for the inmate, but also for the loved one on the other end of the line. The mom is sitting there not knowing, are they trying to call me back? Can I go out and do my shopping? No, I better just sit here and wait. You get to the point where you don't dare leave the house. Which brings us to the third problem with the way the phone system is set up. I have a collect call from... Nadine Bloom. Accept this call. Please press... It only allows collect calls. The collect calls only system causes two problems. The first is that it requires a human to answer the phone on the other end. People on remand may be in jail for months or even years while they await their trial. And at some point, they may need to start thinking about what they're going to do when they get out. Many social services and businesses are answered by an electronic switchboard. You know, press one for English. Appuyez sur le deux. And so no one is able to accept the collect call. This means that inmates have to rely on their family members to help them with things like contacting their school, finding alcohol or drug treatment programs, and connecting them with job-seeking services. The second issue with collect calls is that they're very expensive. First of all, there's a connection fee. Local calls cost $1 per call. But then inmates are often in jails that are far away from their friends and support networks, which means that families are also on the hook for long-distance charges. Now, the connection fee for a long-distance call is $2.50. But on top of that, people have to pay charges by the minute, which are much more expensive than the long-distance charges that you might pay if you had a phone plan. Irene told us about one mother whose daughter was experiencing a mental health crisis while in remand. Daily telephone calls were crucial to her well-being. Over a 13-day period, these calls ended up costing the mother $230. The phone is also important for really practical reasons. Most people are going about their regular life when they're arrested. And then all of a sudden, they need to make sure that their rent is taken care of, that someone is there to pick up their kids, and that they can get the time off work, at least until they get out. And all of this coordination needs to be done by phone. There's also the things that you need help with getting when you're on the inside, like a fresh change of clothes for your trial. The barriers put in place by the phone system made this difficult for Annie. I think I only got a clothing change once or twice like two sets of clothes. After a while, like, you know, your clothes get soiled, you can't wash them. There were a few times where it was kind of like I could smell my body odor on my clothes. And so I was wondering, like, can my lawyer beside me smell me? Like, can the guard who's walking me down through court cells and into the courtroom, can they smell me? Like, it's almost like a thing where you're going into the courtroom to be judged and you're sitting there wondering, are other people judging me for this? Can I go into the courtroom with my dignity intact? But for Annie, the biggest impact was on her relationship with her family. I felt like there were family members that I wasn't able to speak to because of the phone situation. And so I kind of felt like I was losing that connection with them. 
for example, I have younger siblings. They didn't even know that I was incarcerated. So I didn't get to speak to them at all during that time that I was there. And so they were younger at that time. And so I kind of felt like I lost that connection with them. I think if I had had a little more access to the phone and was able to talk to my family on a more regular basis, I don't think there would have been so much friction when I was coming out because it was almost like, to some extent, I didn't feel like I was supported. And it's not necessarily because they didn't want to support me, but that there were barriers in place. And so I think that would have made a difference in terms of like our relationship, even as it stands today. Why on earth is the prison phone system set up this way? Irene has a theory. It is my impression that this very costly phone system is profiting more than one party. The government enters into contracts with private companies, and these contracts are not generally publicized. But that doesn't mean that they'll stay hidden forever particularly if you mess with the wrong lawyer. Enter Michael Spratt, criminal defense lawyer at the law firm Abergel, Goldstein and Partners in Ottawa, and co-host of the podcast, The Docket. We were getting phone bills at our firm for thousands and thousands of dollars a month because we would accept our clients' collect phone calls. Michael and his firm are paying these phone bills out of their own pockets to assist their clients, and this cost has an impact on their bottom line. But more importantly, it impacts on their ability to represent their clients, who are some of the poorest and most marginalized people in society. I know that clients are aware that we're paying the freight on those calls as well. And sometimes they won't call as much knowing that uh, we have to pay for it or thinking that, you know, we might hold it against them if every time we accept their phone calls. So after years of seeing the impact of the system on his clients, and after paying tens of thousands of dollars, he'd finally had enough. And so he fought back in a very lawyerly way. He wrote a letter. I submitted a Freedom of Information request to the ministry for all documentation regarding phone contracts, the phone system, or phone rates. After waiting for many, many, many months, I received the contract between Bell Canada and the government of Ontario. The most shocking thing was that Part of the revenue from these calls is being kicked back from Bell to the government. We wondered how much the government is profiting from this arrangement. We don't know how much. That was redacted as well. But what's clear is that a lot of money is being made from these phone calls. We're talking about millions of dollars a year. And some of that money is going back to the government. So the government is making money into general revenue off the backs of people who are incarcerated, who are being charged exorbitant phone rates and who have no choice but to pay those costs. Keep in mind that these are people who are on remand, meaning that they haven't had their trial and they're presumed to be innocent. The other feature about remand is the conditions uh, in the detention centers are horrendous. I mean, these are like Dickensian hellscapes that, that normal members of the public can't even imagine. Three to a cell that's designed to only hold two, someone sleeping on the floor with their head by the toilet, awful food, frequent lockdowns, overuse of segregation, dirty, violent, and horrendous conditions, limited family visits, limited lawyer visits, 
Not only are these people presumed innocent, not only are they being housed in, in really poor conditions, but the overwhelming number of people on remand waiting for their trial who don't make bail, they're disproportionately poor, marginalized, racialized individuals who already face great stigma in our society. And the lack of ability to have meaningful contacts with people who aren't in custody might affect them more than it would you or I if we were in, in that situation. The impact is particularly harsh for certain Indigenous inmates. There aren't any remand centres in the far north of Ontario. So if you're from a northern community, you're going to be incarcerated far away from home can't imagine being away from your home for the first time in an environment that's very different, in a culture that's very different, without family supports, in now being wrapped up in a justice system that is also very different and very foreign in terms of your traditions and your backgrounds, and then being warehoused in a facility that's awful, and then not being able to reach out The irony is that in the documents that Michael Spratt obtained through his Freedom of Information request, the government explicitly recognizes that access to family through phones is important for rehabilitation. Here's what they say. Correctional Services recognizes that communication between inmates and members of the community is important for rehabilitation and successful reintegration into society. The telephone is the primary method by which inmates maintain contact with others. And in these documents, the government mentions the various problems with the system that we've talked about here. So the government knows that the system they've set up has some major flaws. But does the system violate the law? Michael Spratt certainly thinks so. He believes the system violates the charter rights of people in detention centers. So everyone has the right to to counsel. Everyone has the right to full answer and defense, to know the case against them, to prepare to uh, have access to the disclosure of the allegations and of the information collected by the police. And this uh, punitive and high-priced phone system interferes with both of those. It limits contact with counsel. It limits the ability to review uh, the case against you, to know the case against you. And I think that um, there is a good argument that if you're looking at uh, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, that denying people contact with their families, denying them the tools and resources to reintegrate, to receive treatment, and to uh, communicate with the outside world. And I think of particular note that these provisions would be offended while people are at their most vulnerable, while they are unable to take any other means to remedy the situation, and while they're presumed innocent and facing um, very serious custodial consequences. Where you're able to prove that a charter right has been violated, the government then has a chance to persuade the court that these infringements are justified. The documents Michael obtained through his Freedom of Information request justify the phone system on the basis of public safety. That justification about sort of if we let people make phone calls from jails, I mean, people will be intimidated. The drug lords will run their business from in jail. That's the typical sort of fear-mongering, worst-case scenario that's used by all manner of individuals to defend, you know, retrograde policies. It's an appeal to fear, which is, you know, not rational. If the government has evidence that this would be or could be a problem that is not manageable, then there are mechanisms that can be put into place. For example, there could be approved numbers that you can call. 
How about you're allowed to call your lawyer for free? Irene also points out that in other jurisdictions, the phone systems work differently. Some have a pre-approved list of people you can call. Others allow inmates to purchase calling cards, which at least allows them to pay less per minute. So it's certainly possible for the system to be set up in a way that protects public safety and is more affordable. The justification for this system just doesn't add up for us. We're struggling to square the government's statements about how maintaining contact with people on the outside is important for rehabilitation and integration with a phone system that makes contact more difficult, expensive, and for some, impossible. And if the government is doing this to make money off the families of people in jail, well, that's clearly wrong. There are legal solutions to this problem, but they are not easy or practical to pursue. A charter challenge is expensive, requires an effective plaintiff or interested group to bring the case, and many of the people most deeply impacted by this issue can't afford to hire a lawyer for this sort of thing, or frankly, are fighting more serious legal battles of their own. A charter challenge is, in some ways, an option of last resort. A more efficient solution is for the public to put pressure on the government to change the way it operates the phone system. Write to your MPP. Go to public events. Just open your, your ears and your hearts. We'd like to thank Goldblatt Partners LLP for their supportive objection. We'd also like to thank our producer, Ellie Gordon Marshall, and the many people who've helped us along the way, including Annette Bloom, Bob Miller, Vanessa Payne, Dan Shepard, Kaylin Lord, Yasha Asik, and Katia Kane. We'd like to thank Jeremy Fisher for the use of his song, Uh-Oh. Other music in this episode by Jazzhar and Lee Rosevier. See show notes for full music credits.